like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, I am in the middle of my comments on and my review of Dick's 1964 novel, Martian Time Slip. So this is the third episode on Martian Time Slip, so I encourage you to go back and listen to the first two episodes. Um, But this... Anyway, this novel is... Really, I think one of Dick's greatest works of the '60s, and that make, means it basically is one of his one of his greatest works. I, I put it up there along with my favorite, which is Galactic Vatheler. Um, it's got some really wonderful character moments. It's got some wonderful philosophy in it, and I just think the setting is so well developed and so well realized. And it's just so interesting in the course of Dick's career, like how he changes his views on like what mental illness is and what it's about, what the frontier is. Um, it's one of his more overtly anti-authoritarian novels, which I think is an, something that's it's always in the subtext of Dick's work, but it's not something he always, you know, puts uh, first and foremost. Now, Dick's not a guy who normally writes villains. In fact, thinking back. Yeah, there's bad guys, I suppose, in novels, but not the traditional villain we expect in, you know, in a, in a lot of stories. But this one has a villainous character, Arnie Cott, who's kind of one of these big union bosses who dumb, who controls the politics and society of, of Mars. We also have one of our more likable, I think, protagonists with Jack Bolin, who you know, he's very human. He's suffering from mental illness. He's trying to make a new life for himself on the frontier, but he has all these family problems and he's got a, a wife who really doesn't understand him and is kind of drifting away from him. And kind of the question of, of whether do you stick with your spouse or do you venture off for kind of bigger and better things with another person, something Dick explores in some of his other novels. It, it's taken on here, I think, in a very very meaningful way. We got some wonderful things about education. I talked about those in the last episode, the, the concept of automated education. We have a general theory of kind of mental illness that's kind of works in two ways. One is this idea of of a whole society becoming progressively mental, mentally ill. And that's really what we have in Mars with just the depth of mental illness across the characters and just the commonality of it. Um, we have themes here of eugenics. So it's, it's very, very rich. Uh, even like issues like land speculation, the whole plot is really about who's going to control these, this, these mountains out in the frontier of Mars, the frontier of the frontier that no one really wants, but there there starts to get rumors that the UN is going to buy up this land, so it becomes really about who's going to dominate this land speculation, like an issue that you maybe learn about when you study like American frontier history. You know, for my main uh, hundred pages podcast, I'm currently re- reading Willa Cather's book. Old pioneers, and even in that novel, you have this idea: these people are on this shitty land, this that's kind of miserable, and they're not sure if they're going to make money. Most people are trying to get out, actually selling their land or or, you know, or fleeing, getting out of debt and in bailing. Yet, 
you know, the question is like maybe in the future we can develop it. And the rumors about what the future land will be is all kind of a subtext of, of that novel, O, o Pioneers. It's a, it's a big part of American frontier history. And yeah, Dick is kind of projecting the American frontier and its concerns and politics onto here. There's even an indigenous population called the Bleakmen who have their own religions, their own worldview. Some kind of exist on their own on sort of reservations in the desert. Others are adapting to the human presence. So anyways, for a short novel, it's, it's wonderfully rich, yet it all comes together in a coherent plot. It's not like some other novels, like I'm thinking of the simulacrum where you have a lot of different subplots and they kind of don't hold together very well as a story. This one does. So I think it's, it's really a, a strong tale. So anyways, in the first almost half of the novel, basically we, we, we meet our characters. Our, our main characters are Arnie Cott, who is basically the boss of the Water Workers Unions, which water being very important on Mars, they're the most powerful and rich um, union. And, they, and he has got a girlfriend, Doreen, he's got an ex-wife named Anne, and their son is at a place called Camp BG. And that is the camp for kind of mentally disabled kids or kids with mental illnesses where they get a special kind of education. The doctor there is a man named Dr. Glob. Um, and he's going to be a fairly important character later in the novel as well. That's, that's one character set. Then we have uh, the Bowmans, the Bolins. Sylvia, the wife, she's actually the first person we meet. Their son, David, who's at the traditional public school. And then Jack, who's a repairman working for a Cantonese man named Yi. And he just goes around for the first part of the novel doing different repair jobs. One of the central events that happens early in the novel is Arnie and Jack meet, answering a distress call to the Bleakman. The Bleakman give Jack because Jack actually gives them water and, and addresses their needs while Arnie tries to ignore them because he's a racist. Well, speciest, I guess. He, I guess racism is, I mean, it's a clear metaphor for racism, but I guess in the course of the novel, it's actually speciesism. But anyways, uh, they meet, but they have kind of a hostile opening because Arnie feels that he should be more respected by Jack. Anyways, Jack helps him. He gets a water witch, which is kind of like a mummy that the Bleakmen, the indigenous people, use for divination. Then the second major event is the death of Norbert Steinbert, who, Steiner, who kills himself. He's got a son named Manfred who's at the Camp BG as well uh, for suffering extreme autism. He can't really speak. He's very depressed. He's failing in his career. He's failing in his marriage. He can't talk to his son. He learns that the UN is going to probably come in and purify the frontier of mentally ill people, uh, meaning they're going to shut down the BG camp and probably euthanize the children. When he gets this news, he just gets further into his depression and he ends up killing himself. After that, we deal with the aftermath of, of the suicide, and it affects all the characters in different ways. It affects Boland just in kind of an emotional way, kind of in an empathetic, humanistic way. It affects his wife because she has to actually watch over the Steiner kids for a while. It affects Milton Glob, the psychiatrist who fears he's going to be blamed for not treating um, a mentally ill, depressed person properly and it might hurt his reputation. Arnie Codd is upset because Stein, Steiner was his connect for black market health, health food goods from Earth. So that's... Um, so you deal with that. And then later on, Jack is just traveling around doing his work and he goes to the public school and repairs the different automated teaching robots. While he's there, he thinks about his own past and how he was He got schizophrenia and his schizophrenia had him see everything as machines. So he's in this scene where he's watching, repairing all these humans that 
or these robots that look like humans and teach children. And he imagines his own schizophrenic episodes where he sees humans as robots deep down. And that was his initial kind of emotional break. Um, and that's what promoted him, let, led him to, to leave for Mars. He is then sent to repair a kind of recording device at Arnie Cotts. Uh, Arnie Cotts knows he's a good repairman, but still kind of wants to meet him and is curious about him because of the way of the, the nature of their interaction earlier in the novel. He brings Arnie Cott over. Arnie very quickly, or sorry, uh, Jack very quickly repairs the device. He meets Arnie's mistress, Doreen. And at this point, Arnie says, well, we have time, so I'm going to invite you out to dinner with me. And he's got a scheme, basically. Uh, Arnie wants to basically use Manfred Steiner in order to to use his precognitive abilities. In fact, earlier we meet him asking for for um, his one of his workers at the union to look into if he can get a hold of a precog because he wants to be able to find out which land to buy to speculate on. The plan here then is to use Manfred because the new theory by Dr. Glob is that autistic children actually are existing outside of time. And that's why they can't communicate with, with people who don't have autism. Um, anything else happened in the part of the novel I looked at? Oh yeah, then we meet Otto Zitte. Otto Zitte is, was the co-worker of Norbert Steiner, who's now left on his own. And he decides to go on his own, uh, selling health food goods to lonely housewives. But uh, he goes back to his old pattern, which was instead of asking for money for his services, to ask for basically seduce these, these housewives. So he goes back into into doing that. So that brings us to um, about the 100 page mark, the first six chapters. But um, let's move forward and look at the next three chapters of, of Martian time slope, chapters seven, eight, nine. Okay, so chapter seven is centered on this meeting between Doreen and Arnie, Jack and Glob. And they're all, so basically it was first, Arnie was gonna meet Glob at, at dinner to talk about Manfred Steiner. Um, and of course, Doreen, as Arnie's mistress, comes along, and then Jack was there for the repair, so he's brought along too. And so this whole chapter is about people swapping allegiances and moving people around from the control of one person to the control of of someone else. Um, and we'll, we'll, we see several examples of that in this chapter. So primary, first, uh, Glob, we see Glob heading for dinner and thinking about schizophrenia thinking about how important and influential Arnie Cox is. And so he has a lot of anxiety over meeting this person. And, and we're reminded just how critically important this man is. Because he's a union guy. He's a union boss. Maybe on Earth wouldn't have been that important. But on the frontier, where everything has to be repaired, where water is so rare, the water workers union head is, is a powerful guy. Quote, a man controlling a multi-million dollar union fund, a prominent person in the colonial world, although virtually unknown back home, a feudal baron, virtually. If Cot were to put me on the staff, Glob speculated, I could pay off all these debts we've piled up, these hideous charge account bills at 20% interest that just seem to loom there always, never getting smaller or going away. Then I could start over, not going to debt, live within our means, and a highly expanded means at that, end quote. So we learned Glob's motivation here. He wants to basically become a worker for Arnie um, on contract. And and therefore kind of deal with his financial problems because no one believes he has financial problems, but but he's deeply in debt. So then they have the meeting and they essentially start to discuss. It's really Arnie and Glob are interested in this. They just start to they start to discuss Manfred Steiner. And Glob's idea again is that 
Steiner's autism is sort of being out of time. And that's why he really can't communicate because like the world's going too fast for him or he's existed in a different time period. And they also talk a little bit about Boland's schizophrenia because Boland, you know, is does have this. Now, Boland ensures he's over this and cured, but, you know, there's some doubts about that. But essentially, the plan that Arnie's concocted here is to get Manfred from the custody of, of Glob in the Camp BG and then give it to Arnie. And then have Boleyn use his technical knowledge and his skill to use technology to bridge Manfield's ability. To not cure Manfred, because originally Glob wants to use technology in order to communicate with children like like Manfred. In fact, that's what he tells Norbert early in the story, before Norbert kills himself. That, you know, we might have a chance here of you actually talking to your son through through technology. Arnie, though, wants to use it basically to get access to time travel. Now, this is what really turns Glob into an enemy of Arnie because Glob wanted to be on salary. And it turns out that Arnie doesn't have any interest in actually hiring Glob. He just wants to take Manfred off his hands and basically control this child. And that who person he really wants to hire is Bolin. So there's this moment where Arnie kind of puts his arm around Bolin and says, you know, you're on, you're on the staff now. And this is what really turns Glob into an, an enemy of Arnie, which will be a, a, a minor subplot point in the second half of the novel. Um, now, at one point, Bolin, during this talk, sees Glob as a robot. And he has this kind of schizophrenic break, the same one that, that he had much earlier in his life. And he starts to feel he's going crazy again. And so he goes off together, and then Doreen follows him. So Jack and Doreen have some time together. And of course, Doreen is a Philip K. Dick female character, so she's hot. And, um, you know, that's, that's just part of her character. Um, very beautiful, and Jack's attracted to her. Um, but mostly they, they don't talk really, they are going to develop an affair over time, but they mostly talk about about illness and mental illness. And, and Bolin eventually confesses to Doreen right, pretty much right away, when the soon as they're alone, about his own mental um, health. And he despairs that, basically, once a schizophrenic, always a schizophrenic, that this really can't be cured. Um, now, Doreen starts to try to reassure him that that Arnie really respects him and wants him on the staff. And, and Doreen's actually quite observant here because she also notices that Glob is desperate to get on Arnie's staff. So she's like, you know, be fortunate. Everyone wants to work for Arnie. Arnie has all the money. He's got the good jobs. You know, he demands a lot, but, but you know, this is a real step up for you. So she's trying to encourage him. Now, back at the dinner table, we come to the main point, which is this. Well, it's, he's going to transfer Manfred essentially over to, to Arnie. And then Jack's going to have his contract for, uh, with Yi rented or leased to, to Arnie. So these two transfers. Now, the other transfer taking place is Doreen to Jack. Now, Arnie's not like jealous. He's not super crazy about you know, enforcing monogamy. So he's kind of cool with Doreen pursuing Jack romantically. He doesn't, it doesn't really bother him. He's much more bothered by other ways that Jack will slight him or undermine his goals later on the novel. But the sex thing's not a big deal. In fact, it's, it's seen by Arnie as kind of useful. Um, but so we see all these kind of loyalties shifting in, in this chapter. Now, back at home, Arnie has his other worries and that his big worry is that what is he going to do about his black market goods? He had relied on Norbert Steiner for so long, but now 
you know, he doesn't have that connect anymore. And he's, you know, he's calling for help from his union about who is he, who's he going to find to replace uh, the black, you know, this access to these black market goods, mostly foodstuffs. So he calls this guy and he calls him a couple times in the novel for these. He's, he's like the guy who like busybody for um, or major domo sort of sorts for for Arnie. And that's his name is Scott Temple. And, and he's basically called and says, you got to find out someone to 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 do the to arrange our the, the supplies and things we need. So now Bolin is back in his hotel and he thinks about how he's attracted to Doreen. And he also worries about his distance from his wife. So he has this basic anxiety over whether he should pursue an affair with with Doreen or and, and all that kind of means. And because Sylvia is much different than than Doreen. We even see this kind of in the use of of drugs because Doreen, yeah, she uses chemo, she drinks and she, she probably uses recreational drugs too. At least that's kind of the character we're presented with. But Sylvia uses drugs just to get through life. Like she's a much more depressed and bleak character than Doreen. So not only is Doreen really good looking, I mean, Sylvia is too, or she's described so, such in such a way. And then Otto Zitte, well, later on, we'll, we'll find her attractive. But Doreen's just a different person, a very, someone with like a lot more life in her. Someone who embraces like the life extinct more than Do- Sylvia, who seems to embrace just, you know, existence for its own sake and just, you know, works just to get through it day by day. So that's part of his attraction towards Do- uh, Doreen. And then he gets a call from Doreen basically inviting him over. So the last scene of chapter seven is. Are, uh, is Jack flying in the Yi Company repair ship, which he's had all the whole day, uh, to Lewistown and to see Arnie Cott's mistress. So he's basically taking the step, a rather bold one, of, of, of pursuing sexually the mistress of the most powerful man on Mars. It's one of the things that's kind of likable, I think, about Jack for me, anyways. But he, he's likable in a lot of ways, not just that, but he's... I mean, he's very brave. He's actually a fundamentally a moral person. You see that in the way he interacts with the Bleakman. He's very skilled. He's he's one of the most talented characters we meet. And, you know, he's always trying to do the right thing. And I think that's something that Dick is attracted to as a writer, characters who are trying to do the right thing, even if they're failing. Now, we don't actually see the... The, the kind of the details of, of whatever happened. We know they start an affair from later scenes. But anyways, chapter eight picks up back in the bullying house and everyone is there. David's there, Sylvia and Jack. And also just arriving was Leo. Leo is Jack's father. So he's just referred to his grandfather, Leo. He has come from Earth to Mars with the specific goal of buying up land in the FDR mountain range. In fact, he called Jack earlier in the story saying, I'm going to come to Mars. I'm going to want to buy this land and jack's like no you don't want this land it's basically wasteland it's garbage no one's going to buy it but leo has a very firm plan to to engage in it and leo's an interesting character uh in the story because i mean he's there as a foil to arnie cott kind of the other side of the land speculation competition right because without leo arnie's motivations especially in the second half of the novel aren't that important but he's also very interesting because he contrasts with the reality we see about life on Mars. And he still holds on to the optimism about Mars. I, I really think that this is a novel in which Dick is actually undergoing a crisis about his concept of the frontier. 
in the 1950s writings, as I talked about at length in this podcast, I, it seems to me that Dick is, has a very optimistic view of, of the frontier. That changes over the course of this novel, and we actually see it being argued out by characters. Um, Leo, for instance, has this very firm optimism about, about the frontier life. He thinks it's healthier living. He thinks there's all this opportunity on Mars. He thinks more people are going to come. He thinks it's going to actually be the future of humanity. And then he looks at, back at everything on Earth with bleakness. It's unhealthy. It's overpopulated. You know, there's resources are lacked. It's, you know, it's bleak. But from the perspective of Sylvia and Two Degree Jack, Mars is fairly bleak, right? Especially the place that Leo wants, wants to go. Um, now, I think we, we, we come to the conclusion that in a sense, Jack and Sylvia are right that this Mars isn't all it's cracked up to be, but Leo certainly has this optimism. And this leads him into the speculation and leads him into this optimism about his own financial future. He thinks he can become independently wealthy through a real estate deal on Mars. And that's really the core of Chapter 8 and Chapter 9, actually, is is the the plot of, of, of what's going to happen to the FTR Mountains. We have more conversations uh, between Leo and Jack. One is really about why is mental illness expanding and why are more and more people getting sick? And this is something that an older man like Leo could reflect on. He says, quote, Jack, I've always worried about you. Maybe I'm old fashioned and I don't understand this mental illness business. Everyone seems to have it nowadays. It's common like flu and polio used to be like when we were kids and almost everyone caught measles. Now you have this one out of every three I heard on TV one time schizo, whatever. I mean, Jack, with so much to live for, why would anyone turn his back on life like these schizo people do? It doesn't make sense. you got a whole plan to conquer here. Tomorrow, for instance, I'm going to go over to the FDR Mountains, and you can show me all around over here, all over, and then i got all the details on legal procedure here. I'm going to be buying. Listen, you buy in too, you hear me? I'll advance you the money. End quote. So he's, he basically says, like, what's there to be sick about? There's a whole dynamic future frontier. Um, but again, we get this idea that like life is getting progressively worse in among humanity. We also get a conversation of generational conflicts about sex. Essentially, Leo sees right away the marriage problems between Sylvia and, and Jack, and he talks to Jack pretty frankly about it, if he's got another girl, which he predicts, rightfully predicts. In fact, I, you know, he basically just started this affair with Doreen. Um, and they have a nice little frank conversation about this. So um, he's also kind of talking about how times change in respects to sexual morality. And here's what Leo says to Jack. I know it's modern times. You think by this playing around, you keep yourself well, right? Maybe so. Maybe it's just a way to sanity. I don't mean you're not sane. Just tainted, Jack said with violent bitterness. Christ, your own father, he thought. What an ordeal. What a miserable tragedy. End quote. I know you'll come out okay, Leo said. I can see now that you're struggling. It's not just playing around. I can tell by your voice you got troubles. Same ones you've always had. Only as you get older, you wear out. It's harder, right? Yeah, I see that. The planet's lonely. But it's a wonder all you emigrants don't go crazy right off the bat. I can see why you would value love anywhere you could find it. What you need is something like this, like what I got. This land thing of mine. Maybe you can find it in your building, in building your machine for that poor mute kid. I'd like to see him. End quote. So... You know, Leo sort of understands why there's this kind of fracturing of the family in Mars, but he thinks the solution is, you know, just go into business, you know, have have something to live for. Very much kind of a, it's, I think it's a fairly honest 
conversation between generations about something as, as probably sensitive as, as adultery. You know, when you see your son having an affair, you know, how do you talk to him about it? And then how do you kind of impose or talk about your own values in the context of a modern world? And not only just a, modern, a, a new modern world, but a, a frontier environment that's very different you know, that he doesn't really understand. So they're doing their chit-chatting. And then Sylvia, meanwhile, is pondering the own changes in her life. And this is really foreshadowing her feeling that she doesn't really have, she's not really living a life. And she thinks about Manfred. She thinks about this boy, because obviously by now they know this new job that Jack has to work on this machine. Uh, and he just, she just feels very lonely. And you get the sense of the deep loneliness she feels. And then we get a scene. I'm just going to call it the gubbish scenes. Um, when we get points of view from Manfred or when Manfred's affecting people around him. In the second half of the novel, we learn that Manfred can actually shape how people perceive reality if he's near them. This is the first scene we get, which this we kind of see things through Manfred's mind. And one the test that we know we're seeing things through Manfred's eyes is this word gubbish. And that's basically how Manfred speaks, Manfred Steiner speaks. Um, so what is this scene? I don't know, maybe I'll just read it. It's not very long, um, but it's hard to... It's a bit hard to describe. All right, here we go. High in the sky circled meat-eating birds. At the base of the window building's later excrement, he picked up the wads until he held several. They twisted and smelled like dough, and he knew that they were living creatures within. He carried them carefully into the empty corridor of the building. One wad open, parted with, was split in his woven hair-like side. It became too large to hold, and he sat it down on the wall. The compartment where it lay on its side, the rent, the rent so wide that he perceived the creature within. Gubbish! A worm coiled up made of wet, white, bony plates, the inside gubbish worm from a person's body. If only the high-flying birds could find it and eat it down here like that. He ran down the steps which gave beneath his feet. Boards missing. He sat down through a sleeve of wood to the soil beneath the cavity, dark, cold, full of wood so rotten that it lay in damp powder, destroyed by gubbish rot. Arms lifted. He tossed them to the circling birds. He floated up, falling at the same time. They ate his head off, and then he stood at the bridge over the sea. Sharks! showed in the water their sharp cutting fins he caught one on his line and it came sliding up from the water mouth open to swallow him he stretched back and the cave and the bridge caved in and he sagged and the water reached its middle it rained gubbish now all was gubbish wherever he looked a group of those who didn't like him appeared at the end of the bridge and held up a loop of shark teeth he was emperor they crowned him with the loop and he tried to thank them but they forced the loop down on his head down his head to his neck and they began to strangle him they knotted the loop and the shark teeth cut his head off once more he sat in the dark damp basement with the powdery rod around him listening to the tidal wave lapping lap lapping everywhere a world where gubbish ruled he had no voice the shark teeth had cut his voice out i am manfred he said and that's the whole passage we get uh we're told at the end that this is all from manfred's point of view but it really doesn't make much sense uh what's going on but it's our first kind of window into the world that manfred sees and then we get a, a scene between Arnie and Doreen. And Arnie's fine using Doreen to really hold on to Bol Bolin. Um, but he also has, he mostly cares about Bolin's progress in the machine. He doesn't really care that much that he's banging his girlfriend. He, he actually thinks that's a good thing almost. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a scene with Doreen and, and Arnie still together. So. so that's it. That's chapter eight. Um, in chapter nine, we, we finally get more details on Leo's plan. Even though we met Leo in the previous chapter, he doesn't talk about his real, his real estate plan yet. And 
So Jack's making progress on his device that he thinks can communicate with Manfred. He 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 plays with like using movie projectors to speed up the the pace of things. So this is kind of the old idea that Glob was talking with Norbert about that maybe you could speed up time or perception of things in a certain space, right? Maybe like a parent would talk to the child and then it would be sped up and then or slowed down or whatever. And then the autistic child could then understand what's being said. Um, Norbert was kind of depressed with that idea, but it's, it's basically Jack's going along the same line. It, it's kind of a slow progress, though. Arnie wants like a device tomorrow. He wants something that can basically use Manfred as a precog instantly. And it's kind of un- we learn that's kind of unrealistic because there's a lot of work to be done just to like lay out the principles and actually to begin communication with Manfred. Leo, through seeing this work, is proud of his son because Jack certainly is very talented at tinkering and solving problems and things. He's actually ideal for for a place like Mars. They eventually go to get Manfred at at the Steiner house um, because he's there, and they talk they talk a little bit with Mrs. Steiner, and then Leo finally unveils his plans for the land speculation deal. And essentially what he's learned is that the UN has plans to develop the the mountains. I think Arnie had ideas that they were going to be like developed into military bases later on. But Leo reveals that the plan is basically to build apartments there. Leo says, the UN is going to build these multi-unit dwellings, whole tracks of them, mile after mile, with shopping centers, complete supermarkets, hardware stores, drugstores, laundries, ice cream parlors, all built by slave equipment, those construction automatons that feed themselves on their own instructions. And then Jack says, it looks like the co-op apartments I lived in years ago when I had my breakdown. And quote, of course, it's 1950 suburbia is, is the future of the frontier, right? I guess now we can think of 1960s um, suburbia. Um, but that's what's going to be built here. Basically, suburban, co- you know, condos with, you know, little neighborhood shops and things. You know, of course, now I suppose they'd be like McDonald's and uh, chain stores, chain hotels and everything. But anyways, that's the plan. So Leo's plan is pretty simple then. He knows this is going to happen. So he's just going to go and claim it, you know, claim the land, buy it, pay for it or whatever. Go through the legal process to claim it. And then the UN, if they want to keep with their plans, is going to have to then buy it from, from Leo for a huge profit. So they go out there to to do some of the groundwork they need to do to to claim this land. And they look upon the Bleakmen, the indigenous people of, of Mars. And there's a suggestion here, which is a bit of foreshadowing, that maybe, and Jack thinks of it first, that maybe Banford would do better with the Bleakmen. He says that because they, they move slower, they have a less complex life, they're not part of the modern world, maybe... Manfred just needs a kind of a slow down life that's more in touch with how he perceives time. So he thinks maybe maybe he'll be happier with the with the bleakman. Now eventually at the site of the FDR mountains, Manfred, they give Manfred some crayons. I think they give him crayons just to sort of waste his time to give him something to do. And he starts to draw a picture. And what he's drawing actually, what they find out he's drawing is he's drawing the future of this space what this place is going to be in the future and what he ends up drawing is a slum so the un plan is to build like a new urban new crisp modern housing with a modern kind of setting settle people there right 
And Manfred is able, doesn't see that. He doesn't see like the glory days of that. He sees past it when this land degenerates into a slum. Um, and this is, of course, a common idea in Dick's fiction is this idea of entropy, that everything decays and everything gets bad. Everything, it's like, it's in Ubik, right? If you've read Ubik's novel, well, we'll the novel Ubik, I mean, we'll get to it eventually, but the, there everything is kind of decaying down and breaking down. And, and we've seen this a little bit in other stories already, or thematically, it's certainly there throughout throughout his work, that things just get sort of decayed and rotten and, and crappy over time. And that's the future that Manfred draws. Quote, the buildings were old, sagging with age. Their foundation showed great cracks radiating upward. Windows were broken, and what looked like stiff, tall weeds grew in the land around. It was a scene of ruin and despair and of a ponderous, timeless, inertial heaviness. Inertial heaviness. Jack, he's drawing a slum, Leo exclaimed. That it was, a decaying slum, buildings that had stood for years, perhaps even decades, which had passed their prime and dwindled into their twilight, into senility and partial abandonment. Now, we, Manfred is also able to draw like what the name of this apartment, these apartment complex or this, this neighborhood, and it's A-M-W-E-B. Now, we're going to learn later on what that stands for. It's actually standing for the, the line from it's a Schiller's poem, the one used by Beethoven in Ode to Joy. Ale Menschken, um, sorry, Ale Menschken Verden Bruder. All men are become brothers. So it's got this very optimistic declaration statement of what it's about. But as all things, it's going to decay into a really disgusting slum. So he sees entropy. That is Manfred's superpower, is he sees he sees entropy. And that's what Gubbish seems to be. And in fact, Jack figures this out. Jack's so intuitive and, and on the ball with these things. He, he sees it right away. That this word that Manfred always says, Gubbish, might mean time. Quote, the force that to the boy means decay, deterioration, destruction, and at last death. The force at work everywhere and everything in the universe. Is that all he sees? If so, Jack thought, no wonder he's autistic. No wonder he can't communicate with us. A view of the universe that's partial. That isn't even a complete view of time. Because time also brings new things into existence. It's also a process of maturation and growth. And evidently, Manfred, Manfred does not perceive time in that aspect. End quote. It's really actually a horrible vision of, of how one might you know, see reality. right? You see the future, but you only see the death. You only see the decay of things. It's like that X-Files episode. I think I mentioned it before in this podcast, the one where there's a psychic who only has one power, and that's you see how people die. So you're always kind of seeing the bleak part of life. Um, and as the chapter ends, Manfred actually sees him his own self in, in the future. So again, he's going to see his own decay. And and that's, that's Manfred's um, miserable fate. And that's, what we're, that's where we leave off um, at the end of chapter 9. So I'm going to stop for now and come back next time looking at uh, chapters 10, 11, 12 of, of Martian Time Slip. Maybe 13. Yeah, I think maybe. We'll see. Um, there's seven chapters left in the novel, and I'll, I'll deal with them over the next two episodes. So anyways, um, a lot of interesting stuff going on in this chapter, although it's, it's fairly plot heavy. Um, I guess thematically we see this idea of shifting loyalties and shifting ownership, whether it's Doreen to Jack or Jack losing Sylvia or Arnie taking over Manfred or taking over Jack's contract or Leo buying land and, and all these. So Manfred going under the care of, of Jack 
for a short period of time, having just lost his father. And then the other th major theme here is this theme of deterioration, the decay and entropy, and the hard old things. We learn that Manfred's autism is really this capacity to see just entropy and just decay. So um, everything's rolling now, so it's just a matter of kind of getting to the climax and seeing how all these threads threads connect. It's Given that there's only seven chapters and we're well over halfway through the novel, it's amazing that Dick kind of ties it all together nicely, but he does. So I'm looking forward to coming back shortly to, to look at part four of my comments on Martian Typeslip. But in the meantime, if you have any of your own thoughts or comments, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll very much love to, to hear from you. So as always, um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.